Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the podcast miniseries from Curzon, all about the work of Peter Strickland broadcasting from a sound studio near you. I am Jake Cunningham and I am very excited to be sat here with my headphones on, the metallic chimes of existential doom ringing between my ears, this episode on the 2012 film Berberian Sound Studio. Now it may be my grip on reality gradually loosening, but it looks to me at least, uh, Stephen Ryder and Catherine Bray. You're back with me for this episode as well. Hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me again. This is going to uh, be Apologies. Buongiorno. <laughs> <laughs> Maintain that accent for the rest of this I episode, no, please. I can't, I'm not going to do yes. it. More uh, Italian impression. Yes. <laughs> yes. Catherine, as you are going out in Italian, I can sure you can say that that was spot on. Perfetto. <laughs> Okay, if you if you haven't heard our episode on Catelyn Varga already, that's Peter's first film, uh, do go back and listen to it if you can, then rejoin us on this second checkpoint into the Strickland. Uh, if you need to watch any of Peter's films, you can do so on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, to get 50% off of this one, Catelyn Varga and the Duke of Burgundy, just use the code Strickland when you go to CurzonHomeCinema.com. In this episode, we'll be discussing the breakout success at Berberian Sound Studio, as well as hearing from the director himself as he tells us all about making the opposite of a film and finding mischief in his work. Stephen, could you just give us a quick recap of Berberian Sound Studio, which I know is not an easy task? Uh, no, it's not. I mean... The plot itself, I guess, is relatively simple. We start with uh, a man named Gilderoy. He's a bit of a, a, bit of a sad sack. He's a bit meek. Uh, but he arrives in Italy at the uh, titular Barbarian Sound Studio and he um, is set to start work on a, a, a giallo film, an Italian kind of uh, violent crime film. And he's kind of faced with all these fish-out-of-water scenarios where he can't quite understand the language and people aren't being very helpful to him. But the director does kind of put him up on a pedestal as this incredible sound designer and this kind of like this artist who can change a film's fortunes and really kind of get the director's vision or oral vision across. And uh, so he starts work on this film and soon begins to realise that the film might actually be uh, taking a hold over him uh, more than he uh, thought it might. Uh, and we kind of follow his descent into madness. What's going on? Just another scene with Veronica. Can I use her imagination? Speaking of scenes, I was going to ask you what... 
about the film. Hey, what do you mean? Like, just to know a bit about what happens. No, Santini's uh, it's okay, this. it's okay, Francesco. This is a very specific vision. But you must help me, Gilderoy. It's something I want you to respect. It's not that, it's just... I've never worked on a horror film before. Horror film? This is not a horror film. This is not a horror film. This is a Santini film. So, Catherine, can I just ask you about your first reactions to Berberian Sound Studio? Where? When? Perhaps even... Why? (laughs) Well, I now know in the course of researching for this podcast that my first response to the grain that would become Barbarian Sound Studio was actually a really long time ago because I was a judge on a short film competition run by Cobra Beer. And I don't actually remember the short film that Peter Strickland made that was the seed of, of Barbarian Sound Studio, but I must have seen it. And I, I want to say I'm sure it was very memorable, but clearly <laughs> it wasn't. We'd probably had too much Cobra beer. So, Catherine, in a way, uh, the world owes you for bringing Peter Strickland, the film director, into the world, really. Well, my terrible confession is that I remember advocating for one of the other shorts to win. So um, I'm, I'm not going to retrospectively claim that glory. That would be a terrible thing to do. <laughs> Okay. Um, I, I was actually... Uh, you were also on that jury. I wasn't on the jury. I, I remember very clearly uh, my first job as a projectionist was uh, was running this film in a cinema, actually. <laughs> and um, I remember sitting up in the booth and not being that interested in this film, actually, because um, I hadn't seen Catalan Varga. didn't know who Peter Strickland was. And in the booth, you have to keep the sound turned up. So if you hear it, Uh, anything drop off you know that the film's finished you can't just sit and watch it the whole time and in this film obviously the sound is very important and as soon as I started hearing these screams and these crunching bones and these blood splatters I was like oh this actually sounds really interesting so it was the sound of the film that actually got me interested in Peter Strickland. So it was the first time you watched this through a projection booth? Uh, No I the first time I heard it was in a projection booth but after hearing uh, hearing it I thought no I better go see this. So I I, I this podcast is sort of turning into recovered hypnotic (laughs) memories early Strickland encounters. (laughs) This film was a great success in 2012 and in my head it kind of retroactively had a bigger journey to the screen uh, than what it actually did Uh, because of the way that uh, we collectively revere it. It feels like this would have had some big European festival premiere and Toby Jones gets like tons of Best Actor Awards on the way to BAFTA and BIFA glory. Um, but this this makes its bow at the Edinburgh Film Festival in 2012, which is a, a lovely film festival. Um, uh, not like the big high-profile thing that you might expect. Uh, that It rides that way to like genre fests like Fright Fest and uh, releases after the summer bank holiday. So one for the kids before <laughs> they before you send them back to school, take them to this on an inset day, and then <laughs> shove them off into the bus. Do they call them inset days anymore? I don't think they do. Well, I, I call them inset days. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been to school for a long time. <laughs> At least three years. <laughs> and so it comes out with, with rave reviews, great success. Uh, Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian calls Peter Strickland a key British filmmaker of his generation. It would go on to sweep the British Independent Film Awards for uh, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Sound, uh, Best Production. But looking back on it now, it feels like it was weirdly small at the time, considering how collectively we have all embraced this film. 
Well, I remember we had high hopes for it at Film 4 where I was working at the time um, and I guess they were realised people did people absolutely loved it and I think still do which is which is great um I don't know if people felt like it was a surefire hit uh we should probably talk a bit more about what happens in the film but it's obviously a piece sublimely concerned with craft and with sound design and you know with textures and perhaps not real people but sort of symbolism and I'm sure you can tell as I'm talking that these these things were all seen by film studios as money in the bank as far as audiences are concerned. (laughs) Yeah. And I think what the what the film's playing off as well, like very this is how this film is how Peter Strickland got his reputation as being kind of a a new Jalo filmmaker. Um, when in reality, I don't think that's what this film is. I think it's a film that includes kind of like references to Jalo. Obviously, there's a Jalo film being made in it. For those listeners that don't know, by the way, Jalo is a is an Italian uh, kind of specific horror film, crime film uh, made popular by Dario Argento. Uh, it's called Jalo because of the yellow book covers that uh, inspired the films. They used to all be yellow, and they used to all be very violent, so people would know that they were, you know, um, that kind of book. But uh, yeah, I think this is the film that kind of gives him that reputation, but uh, it's so much smarter than that. Um, there was a, a Jalo parody that came out a couple of years later called The Editor that is fine and fun, but doesn't quite have the same depth to it that something like this does. And I think that that's why someone like Bradshaw would point Strickland as a very important voice in British cinema because he's doing new stuff with genre. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I think it's time we heard from the man himself talking about those influences on Berberian Sound Studio. It's just one of those fascinating things with this film. Where do you begin? Was it just a fascination with the way that sound is produced in film? Did you know a Foley artist or a sound engineer? Um, I did a... Oh, bizarrely enough, yeah, this is, this is very strange. I... It started as a, as a joke. Um, I entered this competition for Cobra Beer. We had to do like a one-minute ident. And I, but it had to be split into six or five, five or six parts. So with the Bowman brothers, we did them these, these Foley artists from the kind of the William Castle <coughs> period doing that kind of schlocky horror film. Uh, and bizarrely, the, the award ceremony for that was here back in 2006. Um, and I kind of forgot about it afterwards. But then... I thought after we shot Cutland Varga, I thought actually we can go somewhere else with this. We can go somewhere much, much darker and look into how we are complicit in violence, but without being didactic about, about it. Look at performance, look at the physicality of sound, how you, you know, physically your, your throat hurts after screaming so much. And, but how sound was when it was analog, how you had dubbing charts, how you had tape loops, which were physical. Um, all that equipment in a room, which now you can put on one app, probably. Um, all these elements, you know, the vegetables, you know, that's, that's like a physical manifestation of, of that sound. But also, I think, just doing the opposite of a film, where a film has, hides all the mechanics, it's all about the illusion, this, this was the opposite, really. And within that, you, you locate this film within a world uh, uh, productions of um, the Italian horror film Giallo, um, and you have an opening credit sequence at the beginning of the film. Was this in a way to sort of highlight to audiences where you're heading? Well, that came from Julian House. I mean, when I wrote it, I didn't have that idea. Um, 
we asked Julian to do the tape boxes for the film, just to design them. Um, I, I loved his design work for, for his, his, his record label. Um, at that point, he hadn't really got into film, um, and he wanted to have a go at doing a title sequence. So he, he suggested, why don't we do a fake title sequence? And he, sp he spoke about um, the film by Yurai Hertz, the cremator, um, with those kind of cut-ups of bodies and so on. And yeah, I thought, yeah, absolutely. Why don't we do that? So, I mean, he takes credit for that, really. But I, I, yeah, I love the idea of, um, again, I think this idea of a fake credit sequence and I guess being a bit mischievous with the audience. Um, the other thing, it, it leads an audience to feel that they can expect anything or yeah. not expect mm. what's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, I guess for me it was just mischief. Uh, it's something I really miss from films. I mean, the films I was into when I got into stuff in the early 90s, they all, I mean, what they all had in common was they had this mischief, they had this ambiguity, you know, the Warhol, Morrissey stuff, Kurt McDowell, George Cushar, John Waters. Um, so again, that element of just trying things out and not being too worried about, um, I guess, you know, a more sophisticated way of saying that is to be subversive, <laughs> but I prefer mischief myself. Oh. And can you talk about the uh, the actual location itself and and building the entire set of his studio? Well, that was based on um, the studio, which was run by Luciano Berio, Luigi Nono, and Bruno Madonna. He did the soundtrack to Death Laid an Egg by Giulia Questi. It was initially a um, an avant-garde tape composition studio with Valve Technology, <coughs> Studio di Phonologia. And what I was fascinated by was that these polar opposite worlds of academia and exploitation. So you had people like Moderna working with John Cage and, you know, as high art as you could get. Um, Morricone's band, um, Gruppo di Improvisazione Nuova Consonanza, which I can't pronounce properly, that was the Italian version of AMM. Uh, again, it was improv, it was incredibly academic, but they also did soundtracks to horror films as well. So, where is, you know, it, it was fascinating for me, this, to follow that line between these two extremes, but actually, you are finding connections, the idea of atonal music um, works with fantastical images, dissonance, all these elements, and so I think, I think some of the most adventurous music these people did was to those films. I think partly because the pressure of academia was not there, they could kind of relax more. Um, so uh, we tried to copy the exact machinery from that studio, which was impossible because all that stuff is just defunct, it's disappeared. Sometimes we got things, uh, sometimes we didn't. Um, but yeah, it was very, very difficult, especially in London. Um, we had to recreate an Italian studio over, over in London. We did it at Three Mills. Um, but I think Jennifer Kernke, who did the production design, she did a great job. And, you know, I like a lot, you know, a lot of the wood panelling and so on. And so, yeah, I mean, it was like a fantasy studio. I mean, you wouldn't get something like this in real life. We were mixing Foley work with um, tape composition, which you wouldn't normally get. There'd be, usually it's like two separate places, really. It's interesting you talk about um, the work of Barrio and other composers from this era. 
Uh, because again, this taps into an idea that I think you can see in all of your work, and we, we touched on it briefly with Catalin Varga, of the high and low art of genres. Um, if you see something that you do in all your work and there isn't judgment there in the same way that you're so far from a didactic filmmaker that you, you I, I just get this sense when I watch your films there's a pleasure in any source that you can find. I think a lot of that comes from Jane Giles with the Scala I mean she was a huge influence on me but that the way she put the, those uh, films together with those double bills and triple bills and I think she made people see connections between things that we wouldn't normally see. Um, so, yeah, and, and I, again, when I was getting into film, there, there was this kind of hierarchy where at the National Film Theatre, you know, you go to see Bergman, um, but the Scala would, you, you, could, you, you could find Bergman, Fassbinder and Tarkovsky, but you'd also find... Um, Argento all-night films or Thundercrack, which I have a huge soft spot for. Um, so yeah, it, it just uh, I think it just opened my eyes to the fact that there's no divide between what some people would consider trash or um, high art. And, but also there were some directors working in both fields. You know, Borovchik, who came you know from doing Gotto, Island of Love to Streetwalker with Joe D'Alessandro and Silvio Cristel, um, or um, Alan Rob Grille, who's very fascinating because of last year in Marienbad, but some called him a pornographer, some didn't. But again, that, that line between these two, and yeah, I, I guess I always liked um, things that were disreputable. But then the, 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 there is that interesting vein that stretches back through Bataille to the Marquis de Sade in European art where there is the fine line between art pornography, <laughs> art obscenity. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, you know, I think we talk about um, obscenity, um, but for me, the, the, the most fascinating subject is, is, is uh, human desire, uh, which I think all of us are governed by that. It doesn't matter whether single or not single or whatever sexuality we have, we're all governed by our by desire, and that reveals so much about us as characters, even in regular settings. So I think, I think that's why I love Bunuel so much, because he really chipped away at that. And I think it's just like an endless source of in, inspiration. And um, I think a lot of the pornography I enjoy, um, if I think of um, Wakefield Pool or Peter de Rome, with these very lyrical... Um, Invocations of desire. Um, it's like, or pink narcissus. They feel like they're coming out of, out of a steam room and just disappearing again. It's just really, um, I think the imagination can be so strong in, in those films, but they, again, they're dismissed because they're, they're seen as kind of functional cinema to get people off. Um, but I think if you look at them with a different perspective, I think you can find really interesting stuff there. And I, I think, you know, you can pilfer things and use them for narrative as, as well. Thinking about desire and a study in desire, Gilderoy is a fascinating character because he's someone who's utterly stymied by it in many ways, whether it's, it's, it's sexual desire or just ambition. I mean, desire, I mean, yeah, there are moments when it's kind of, you can feel 
the veneer is coming off, you know, even when he's walking behind um, the receptionist in, in, in the corridor. Um, but yeah, I think mean, he's, he's a very repressed character. I mean, I, I knew people like this um, growing up in the 70s, and I find those characters fascinating. And this denial of one's desire. And I think the film challenges that with this very um, sexualized violence, which he can't deal with. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, um, again, it's going back a bit with, with Gilderoy, but um, yeah, it's very um, latent, very held back. And can you talk about what I love about that? You've got this, this repression that three quarters of the way through the film suddenly explodes into this surreal sequence that finds us relocated back into the English countryside. I mean, that, I mean, I mean there's a lead up to that. You see, I think you probably only see it on DVD, but uh, I think you'd miss it in the cinema. But these home tapes he's working on, a lot of the labels, so it all goes back to that. But um, I think it introduces this idea that maybe this whole film is a fantasy in his garden shed in Dorking, or maybe it's just a desperate need to return to that, this kind of homesickness. Or maybe it's like a technical thing of the film literally burning through and revealing this other film underneath. I didn't want to sort of say you know, exactly what what it means. Uh, I mean, a big influence for me with that sequence was um, Tchaikovsky, Peter Tchaikovsky, when he did Outer Space, um, by taking film and completely, uh, I can't think of the word, but um, he just turns it into this kind of labyrinth of photochemical um, psychedelia uh, and using all these elements which normally one would try to eliminate, like optical noise, optical distortion. So really, again, I think looking at the physicality of film, and it's not, even though we shot it on digital, um, it's something that can burn through. It's something that can reveal another layer un underneath. But also, yeah, I mean, ultimately the idea of, yeah, that he's in the film within the film, and <coughs> potentially what he's doing the 34 is his own comeuppance, in a sense. I didn't quite know I'd be working on this sort of film. What did you expect? Santini said to me about equestrian. Oh yeah, a horse riding girl. See, she's just not horse riding anymore, that's all. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Okay, so in that interview, Peter Strickland says that this is the opposite of a film. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Um, I guess it's because it's got such an over-reliance on sound design um, in that he... Well, when you're watching a film, you're seeing kind of a marriage of film and sound that uh, kind of is supposed to go together seamlessly and create a kind of window into another world. And what uh, what Strickland is doing here is bringing all of these elements of filmmaking, pushing them to the foreground and making you as a viewer very, very aware of what a film is. And I think because of that, you start to focus less on the images and you start to focus more on the sounds and then you start to question what's real and what isn't. And he's so clever at creating um, this tug of war between reality and fantasy in this film. Yeah. Uh, Catherine, you're a, you're a filmmaker yourself as well. Uh, it's really interesting to watch a film that doesn't hide its mechanics. Yeah, and I think it's great that he does do this this thing of bringing sound into the foreground because it's certainly an area of craft that is underestimated. Um, you, I mean, you see it a lot in sort of people's very first sort of budget short films. The thing they've forgotten about is sound, and it can it completely tanks a lot of early efforts, um, including a film I made that I'm not going to release. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, something that's really really easy to get wrong and then when you do get it right, it's often seamless. So it's quite hard to for, for critics, I think, to accurately judge what a sound designer has brought to a film. Like you often might only notice it if it's bad or if it's just really conspicuous and really layered on. I think when people are looking at awards and saying, oh, who do you think is going to get the Oscar for best sound remix people don't know because often it is quite hard to judge that yeah i don't think that the voters in the academy know either <laughs> oh so that sort of thing is often given to the the film with the most sound yes. design. yeah absolutely the most was it bohemian rhapsody this year, probably? <laughs> no yeah. it was bohemian rhapsody yeah, this year. yeah it won both sound mixing and sound editing though. yeah mm. um well i mean what you need for your film is to bring in a sound designer like gilderoy who's our man, our hero, I would say. Toby Jones, he's running from that Captain America, the first Avenger energy from 2011. <laughs> he's got the superhero bug and he realises Peter Strickland is the man to turn him into the hero that we all need to see on screen. And that man is Gilderoy. The classic leading man, Toby yes. Jones. Yeah. Um, and so he is brought into this Italian studio where this film being made called The Equestrian Vortex, we never see any of it, but we, we can tell it's a very gory very bloody do we, thing. Do we see the title sequence? Is that the yeah, only the thing? Julian House design title sequence. Yeah, that's some beautiful stuff. Like, this is the kind of stuff, that title sequence is the kind of thing that I love to see in film, where you, so much effort has been put into making something that other, another filmmaker would literally have no interest in showing on screen. But so much effort is, is put into making this uh, authentic kind of opening sequence, and it pays off massively, because for the rest of the film, you're wondering what the hell comes after that opening sequence yeah and we never see any more of the equestrian vortex but we do see smashing lettuces and like an endless supply of different things that you can make any horrible sound effect with and Stephen, i can imagine you sitting up there in your projection booth thinking what horrible nightmare is this and then you look over and it's like oh oh it's a watermelon well the amazing thing about kind of fruit being used for uh sound design is this goes way back to psycho um the the famous story of hitchcock sending out multiple kind of production assistants to grab grapefruits and melons and lemons and apples and seeing which one sounded the most realistic or the most visceral when you smash a knife into it. So this isn't something new for cinema. This is like kind of Foley work and uh, 
fruits being used for uh kind of bloody scenes is is something that's kind of built into the the annals of, of cinema history i yeah. absolutely love those sort of like oh well it turns out that uh doing x doesn't necessarily sound like y so we always have to do z i heard a good one today from a guy in the office whose mum works as a foley artist apparently if you want a man peeing into a toilet sound on film a guy peeing into a toilet doesn't sound realistic they have to be peeing into like the sea or a pool for whatever reason, that's the sound <laughs> like that sounds right water, to our ears. Yeah, right. <laughs> and there's something really, I mean, that's that's daft, but like, there's something really serious there about how um, cinema is often the art of making something artificial that seems more realistic than the thing that's realistic. There's like this sort of double docu- documentary effect there. Yeah, and it, it's Strickland as the, the psychological manipulator that... With it's shock, it's dread, or even arousal. He's so good at heightening these things within us without ever actually showing us much at all. Uh, we mentioned this in our Catelyn Varga episode about getting uh, right into the kind of gritty, dirty, uh, gruesome heart of a, a rape revenge tale without showing anything and just talking it through through dialogue. Um, here he's provoking very human reactions to incredibly extreme moments uh, through Yeah, I mean, obviously we get to this point in the film where he uh, has seen the film or he's seen bits of it. He hasn't actually seen the whole thing. Um, And uh, we get to this point where he's watching these scenes and he's being told, like, you know, this is how I want you to make the audience feel. I want you to make them feel disgust and I want you to shock them. And he's thinking to himself at this point, like, why, why, why am I, why do I want to do this? Um, And I think he starts feeling complicit. Uh, in what's going on on the screen. He starts to become a part of it. And uh, Strickland, uh, like you just mentioned, um, about kind of, uh, what was it, the kind of documenting? That sort of thing where you'll have to come up with something that's actually artificial in order to yeah. represent the real thing more more uh, accurately. I mean, I suppose I'm basically talking about metaphor. That's what metaphor does. I feel like that's what this film is about. And I feel like it's a really good way to look at it is that these, these layers upon layers of artificiality that he is being forced to kind of um, kind of bring to the the foreground of the film and make it as violent and as and as brutal as possible for an audience and uh i i think the whole film is about him struggling with that connection yeah and oh and it's it's a way of audience is being able to kind of uh be made aware of the artificiality of the genre that they love whilst also experiencing it at the same time um but not in a scary movie or cabin in the woods way as well it manages to be completely about other films whilst also having its own singular identity as well i think it's about caricature to an extent i mean which uh that that idea that if you draw a really good caricature of someone it looks more like them than a realist portrait because you're taking the things that are characteristic and exaggerating them which is one reason why i think toby jones is such good casting here because you've trained at the uh, Commedia dell'arte he's um he's a qualified clown which sort of sounds like a Danny Dyer insult but um he you know he's very good with that physical theater and that sort of sense of what to do with your face and with your body and not you know not rely too heavily on dialogue it's not about that yeah uh, it's a fantastic performance i think Stephen, you you described him as having an elastic face yeah i mean it's elastic it's it's the fa- fact that he has look Toby Jones, he's got a droopy face. It's a droopy face. But I do think that he he manages to like pull it up and down and to the side 
that it becomes this amazing thing to look at. So you can You're feel... making him sound like Vincent D'Onofrio in black. <laughs> you can feel every single emotion that he's going through because of these little things he can do with his face. And it makes so much sense that he trained as a clown. I didn't know that. But um, yeah, that makes so much sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, faces is something else that Strickland does well in general. When mm. you look at all the cast in all of his films, particularly sort of people in the background um, or in minor roles, there's always a reason that they've been cast. And I think half the time the reason is the face. Sometimes you'll look them up and it turns out that they're also in an experimental three-piece from Reading or something like that. But that will never be enough. It's They've also got to have that sort of physicality there that makes sense. I, I think, yeah, F- Fellini was, uh, is known like in cinema as like this great filmmaker of faces, a great shooter of faces. And he always picks these incredibly look, uh, the people that look like they've been through something weird. And that's uh, Strickland is the same thing. And I think, in a way, we haven't spoken about how good this movie looks. Um, and I think he's doing himself a bit of a disservice saying it's the opposite to a film because the way he uses like blackness darkness and kind of studio lighting artificial studio lighting in this film is so so impressive and it creates such an amazing atmosphere that you have to remember it's not just about the sound this is an incredibly cinematic film as well yeah um it's it's interestingly shot on digital because it's the kind of thing that you might get like a cine bro plucking out of the ether to say like this is what happens when you just like shoot on 35 you can really tell (laughs) you can tell about the physicality of the film um and this, you can tell about the physicality of the film here, <laughs> but who cares if it's shot on digital? It looks great. It does look really, really um, good. It must have been so intimidating as well, going from like something where you are very much in charge of that small crew in the Carpathian Mountains with, with Kathleen Varga uh, to the Three Mills studio and a film full budget. I mean, not you know an Avengers budget, but still just a real step change there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think he's spoken about his humility of walking into the studio instead of being kind of in in a on a location shoot and looking around and thinking, right, I have no idea what I'm doing, and then saying to the crew, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> You're going to have to like work walk me through this. And I think that his films definitely have an element of kind of everyone being in it together. And I think that's why he manages to pull out such kind of authentic yeah, performance. Yeah, that's why they got him for that new High School Musical. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, if anyone wants to watch Outer Space, which is the uh, Peter Shukaski film that he references in the interview, it's available on YouTube, how it was meant to be seen. <laughs> uh, so do go and check one, that one out. Uh, it's like this flickering nightmare, but also has this great feeling of domesticity, which I think is a great way of seeing uh, Strickland's lens as well. Uh, Stephen, you were lucky enough to see the Berberian Sound Studio play. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us briefly a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I think uh, I was I was a bit nervous going to see it because I think it's quite a bold move to take a film like this and turn it uh, and and completely change the medium. Yeah, because you lose the physicality of the film. <laughs> it's just such a practical setting to because in in the play, the, one of the reasons it's so impressive. Uh, and an impressive adaptation, one that I think was endorsed by Strickland as well, um, is that he they do the Foley work right in front of you, uh, right in front of the audience, as kind of this flickering film is playing behind you as an audience, so you still can't see the film, even though it's being played like behind you. It's not really being played, but the light's there. And um, you get kind of two guys uh, in this film. They're kind of a comedic double act in this play, sorry. Um, a comedic double act that smash up lettuces in front of you or like break glass or like stand on gravel and it's an absolute like it's such an impressive feat to see happen in front of you that it starts to translate really well um the 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 story starts to translate they change a few things around the lighting stays the silencio everything like that it's it's impressive a really impressive play and i i'd like to see his other 
films uh, turned into plays now, I think. Yeah, I could totally see the Duke of Burgundy. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It totally feeds into a fun little list I found that he'd given to some interviewer of his five favourite people, and I'm sure the interviewer was expecting him to sort of pick all these experimental musicians and filmmakers. And it was actually stuff like children's TV presenters from the <laughs> 60s and Siegfried and Roy and a guy called uh, Monsieur Mange Too, who was famous for eating anything in Edible. <laughs> <laughs> Real live theatre. No? <laughs> oh, great. Um, so listening to uh, Peter talk about the film, uh, in particular where it might get to in the end, uh, the final 20 minutes, it definitely proposes that Gilderoy may or may not be a sound designer working in Italy, working on a film. Um, I'm wondering for you two, where do you land on this debate? Who... Who is Gilderoy? Is he just a man in the shed tinkering around with toys and fruit and veg? Or is he actually a sound designer going mad in Italy? Uh, if I'm going to put on my uh, super analytical hat, I'm going to say I think it's a metaphor for Strickland himself. Am I really a filmmaker or have I just been put in charge of all this stuff in three mils? Or am I having a fever dream and actually I'm still in my shed in Reading waiting for someone to get back to me about this film I've shot in the Carpathian Mountains? <laughs> that, that, that woman who I sent all that beer to said it was good. <laughs> she told me she watched it. <laughs> I, I don't like to put a kind of a... Um, an exclamation point on this film and say this is what it's absolutely about because I think those last 20 minutes are so bizarre that I'd rather get lost in the kind of visuals of them which is you know I think the last 20 minutes of this film feed into In Fabric and um, uh, Duke of Burgundy which we're, we'll talk about on later episodes in that they really really go all out with some of the visuals to the point where you have no idea what's going on on the screen and I think he loves doing things like that um, you know one of the films he references uh, he references Brackage a lot when he talks about the filmmakers who he admires and Brackage is obviously someone who worked with literal film and literal kind of like pressing images onto the film and then playing it through a projector until you can't tell what the images are and I think Strickland does the same thing with zooms and does the same thing with kind of blending images, um, reflections. And I think it's uh, the last 20 minutes are so fascinating that to say this is what it's about might ruin that immersion for me. Okay. So now it all makes sense. Uh, (laughs) I'm glad we were able to clear that all up. I've got a new fan theory. It's a fever dream of Ross from Friends. (laughs) You know, Paolo is in it. Paolo. He is, yeah. One of the main Italians. Okay. Fan theory. That's all existing on the holodeck from Star Trek The Next Generation. (laughs) All right. Um, So if you, uh, despite listening to all of that, you haven't actually seen Barbarian Sound Studio and you would like to, uh, remember you can do so on Curzon Home Cinema. Just head to CurzonHomeCinema.com, find the film, enter the off-code Strickland and it will take 50% off the price for you. Turn off all the lights and put the volume up very high and you'll get the best experience out of it. Absolutely. Um, Barbarian Sound Studio was Strickland's sophomore effort. He got past the difficult second album but what would he get up to afterwards? Well, probably the first woodland fairy tale to feature the purchase of a human toilet. That's what. The Duke of Burgundy, up next. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.